Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. It's summertime, and here in D.C., the weather is hot as ever. But what about where you're at? Enjoying the rays, some music, maybe a groove slightly transformed, just a little break from the norm. Maybe you're traveling somewhere new or just grabbing a popsicle and turning up your AC at home. Whatever you're doing, we hope you're putting aside some time for the three R's. Rest, rejuvenation, and reading. Summer is a time for barbecues, sure, but it's also a time for grabbing a book by the pool and expanding your mind. And to help that goal, we wanted to do something a little different on this episode. We asked some of our colleagues across Urban what they were reading this summer and how it's made them reflect on the work they do all year round. With their help, we put together a super podcast summer reading list just for you. We have some serious policy reads, but also some lighthearted stuff. So stick around to the end for the full literary experience. First up, we have Natalie Spivak from our Income and Benefits Policy Center. She's reading an influential work from behavioral economics and psychology. The book I read most recently is Scarcity by Sandil Mulanatan and Eldar Shafir, thinking about the scarcity that people experience in their everyday lives, whether it's scarcity of time or scarcity of money, and the way that that impacts the mind. Often, when you're under conditions of scarcity, you end up tunneling and focusing on what's critical at the expense of what's important. Scarcity can also create a bandwidth tax on people. So if you're experiencing scarcity, you can be more likely to make mistakes. And the book talks about that in the context of people's everyday lives, in the context of thinking about how that might impact designing public policies that help low-income people. We think a lot about how workforce development policies and programs can be designed in ways that work for low-income people. And this book really creates empathy around understanding why low-income people might act in the way that they do, which sometimes to uh, outside observers might not seem like the most rational choice. Now, this may not surprise you, but a lot of urban staffers are also reading books that look broadly at inequality and barriers to advancement. Joyce Ovalle from Urban Center for Nonprofits and Philanthropy is reading an award-winning book called The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Government Segregated America by Richard Rothstein. So one of the things that I really like about this book was that from the very, very beginning, Rothstein was just very, very upfront about the message that he wanted to send for this book. You know, that segregation in neighborhoods were not de facto, meaning they were not, you know, individuals' choices. They were not actions from private institutions, although all of those could have a role. But he's very straightforward about calling out and very much saying how this segregation was a result of very systematic and forceful public policy. But I very much think that in this book, there's a really profound call out to the consequences that public policy has had on residential racial segregation and how some of these consequences are still trickling down 
to current generations and I think specifically for communities of color. Keely Hansen is also from Urban Center on Nonprofits and Philanthropy. She's reading a book called Racing to Justice, Transforming Our Conceptions of Self and Other to Build an Inclusive Society by John Powell. So one of the the things um, John's known to say is race is a little bit like gravity, experienced by all and understood by few. And I really like this book in particular because I think not only does it offer a fresh perspective on racism, but it offers really useful language for speaking with folks who may not view themselves as being complicit with racism. The title itself is a verb, and it's really made me reflect on the work that we do at Urban. You know, it's a set of practices that we do as a society that really constitute who we become, right? And so uh, the question of what we're doing as a society to produce, reproduce, or interrupt certain racial practices is something that he walks through. And I think it's something that as an institute, we're also talking through and, and thinking through. Other colleagues of ours are reading books that dig deep into systems and structures. Here's Adese Okoli from the Center on Labor, Human Services, and Population. One book I just finished is called Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill. And essentially, she's a um, mathematician turned data activist. And uh, her book goes through and talks about all the different ways that data can be weaponized. One of the most interesting examples to me in this book was with a policy organization. They were sort of brought in to help clean up the DC education system about 10 years ago. But the way that they were collecting data and the statistical methods that they used actually were not very accurate and ended up being really harmful and took really strong teachers that were making a huge impact in the classroom, out of the classroom. So that was really interesting to me. And I think also brought in this data lens and sort of thinking about algorithms. It's not necessarily a word that we use a lot here, but thinking about the ways in which data are systematized and how we can sort of stop and think like, is this how we're interpreting this data, is this the best way before we make a decision that could be potentially very harmful? Tomas Monares in our Education and Data Policy Center is reading about the education system too. I am reading this book titled Children of the Dream, Why School Integration Works by Rucker Johnson. I work on the topics of school segregation. My work I think relates a little bit more about why segregation takes place and what kind of policies can be used to try to address those issues. Professor Johnson's work is a little bit more about why segregation hurts people and why integration matters. Black kids that went to integrated schools tend to have uh, better educational achievement, higher wages, better health, more longevity, all these things you know, associated with socioeconomic class. And it's a very deep and very American issue that we still need to grapple with today. Victoria Tran in the Income and Benefits Policy Center is reading about injustice in our legal system. I just finished a book called Crook County, Racism and Injustice in America's Largest Criminal Court by Nicole Gonzalez Van Cleve. And it's a ethnographic study about the institutionalization of racism in the Cook County court system. I think it's a really fascinating study because it does a holistic analysis of both prosecutors and defense attorneys, as well as judges, bailiffs, and other people who are in the court system and the various ways that they 
either contribute to racism or inequality through their treatment of the defendants and also the victims of crimes who are going through the court system. It's really made me think more about the role of the researcher in ethnographic studies, especially as researchers, we want to keep a distance and not impact what we're studying. But as human beings, we're naturally there. We will affect them just by interacting with them, talking to them about their experiences. Matthew Williams in the Justice Policy Center is also thinking a lot about our criminal justice system. He just finished a book called Locking Up Our Own by James Foreman Jr. The book kind of looks at the local level support for different tough on crime policies and particularly looking for the lens of several major cities, particularly cities where people of color had more positions of authority. And so it looks at Atlanta, D.C., The writer references Michael Tonry a lot, who is kind of a criminal justice theorist who talks about the idea that the American criminal justice system is a non-system system. And what he means by that is that it was created by kind of different actions of these disparate actors that combined together and, and basically not everyone was realizing what everyone else was doing and how this was combining to create a more punitive system. That's kind of why it interested me from my work at Urban, because I feel like how we look at issues as researchers is that we want bullet points that can be summarized. And we want something we can put into a brief or a proposal, but things aren't ever that simple. They're a lot messier than that. And sometimes that kind of bullet point attitude obscures just how messy issues are and it prevents us from really seeing the local level impact of what we're studying. And that's something that's kind of been on my mind a lot. So you may be sensing the theme here. We're clearly reading a lot of policy-focused books, but it's not all policy all the time. We like fiction too. Bridget Lowell is the chief communications officer here at Urban, and she knows we all need a good dose of storytelling every once in a while. I love fiction, and I think everybody should read more fiction because it it creates empathy. You know, with fiction, you get the ability to see life through somebody else's eyes. You're placed in a point in time that you wouldn't have access to otherwise. And I think there's no greater tool out there for creating empathy and shared understanding than reading a really great novel. Bridget just read Pachinko by Min Jun Lee, which follows a Korean family through four generations. So first of all, I'm a geek for historical fiction. I love books that take you to a different place and a time and an era and that make you feel and understand something that really would not be accessible to you otherwise. And Pachinko does that. It makes you understand the complicated history between Japan and Korea. And I love the book because the details are vivid. The characters are really complex. No one is purely good or bad. And it's just this very sweeping epic story. The themes that resonate in the book are, it's what it means to have a better life, what it means to try to pull your family out of poverty, what it means to try to create opportunity and how impossible it is to do that when you are confronted with discrimination and racism at every turn. And all four generations in this book, Pachinko, experience this form of discrimination, whether they are in Japan or in the U.S. The book has these themes of the universality of the human struggle. And, you know, what unites us all is this struggle for a better life and this desire to take care of your family. And yet, time and again, we turn on each other. And it happened there. And it's happening here. And that we as humans have this tendency to other people and to try to cast aside people who don't look like us or people with whom we don't share a cultural connection. And yet there is so much that binds us. And there is a lot of tragedy in this book and there's hope and there's love. And it's shocking how relevant it feels to where we are today. 
And what about autobiographies and essay collections? Aristotle Jones and Kate Villarreal on our communications team are cracking open some reflective personal stories this summer. Here's Aristotle. I just finished When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanathi. He was a neurosurgeon in the Bay Area. I believe he trained at Stanford for medical school. He um, actually, unfortunately, died of, I want to believe, stage four lung cancer. For my work, it shows me that we can be good at more than one thing. Paul was a trained neurosurgeon, plus he got his master's in literature. So he was an avid reader from all different paths of literature that he read upon. So it showed me that you can be good at more than one thing. You can branch off and learn different things, and you shouldn't be afraid of anything. That That's what I got from that book. And Aristotle learned about the work from maybe an unlikely source? I was scrolling on my Instagram explore page, and I saw someone say it was very sad and something towards, I guess, my personality. I gravitated to it, and it was definitely sad. I definitely cried reading his wife's epilogue. And here's Kate, the Director of Strategic Communications at Urban, with another book recommendation that may inspire some reflection. So I am reading a book called The Solace of Open Spaces by Gretel Ehrlich, which is a book that I actually found in a little free library in my neighborhood in Alexandria. So this book is cool. It's a series of essays about the modern American West, and it's by a woman who, in dealing with some grief over the loss of a loved one, decided to move to Wyoming and become a rancher and a sheep herder. I'm enjoying it because it's such a departure from my everyday, you know, living in a crowded city, riding the metro, working in an office. So it's been a nice escape. I'd say the way it's impacting my work is it's got me thinking more about rural communities and their unique needs. I am someone who's lived in major cities my entire life. She tells a story about a rancher who accidentally cuts off part of his foot while he's on the job and he's bleeding profusely, but there's no one around for miles. So he has no choice but to drive himself, you know, to the hospital while bleeding. And then because he's a conscientious rancher, he has to make sure to close all the gates behind him so he doesn't let people's cattle out in the process. So it's just got me thinking about access to resources, particularly in rural areas, and just the resilience of people in general. So you got room for one more recommendation? Well, summer means baseball for a lot of people out there, including this guy. Dave Connell on our communications team is a big baseball fan. So the book that I'm reading is is called The Only Rule It Has to Work. It's uh, by Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller. And it's a story of what happens when two baseball analysts and sabermetricians, they become uh, general managers of the Sonoma Stompers, which is an independent minor league baseball game. Sabermetrics just refers to the empirical analysis of baseball using in-game statistics and measurements to find efficiencies in player selection and in-game strategy. So it's baseball analytics, essentially. And what's compelling about this real-world story are the limits of the baseball theories once they try to apply them on the ground. So Lindbergh and Miller are two of the most recognizable proponents of sabermetrics in the world of baseball. And they get the opportunity to test their theories in the field, if you will, and see what works. And they find pretty quickly that what seems to work in spreadsheets and formulas doesn't always translate to the field, especially when you're working with minor league players and managers. So really, at the end of the day, this book is about the intersection of statistical analysis and the community being studied. It's about what happens when solutions devised through analysis and modeling are employed in the real world. 
even if what we're talking about is sabermetrics and minor league baseball. You know, the solutions and policies that Lindbergh and Miller try to implement are not only met with skepticism from their community, but they're applied unevenly. They achieve uneven results. It's messy. It's a messy thing. And I think it's a really important lesson for researchers to keep in mind that the policies that work in a spreadsheet or a model will eventually, hopefully, make it into real communities. And the results will be messy and likely uneven. But like the Stompers in their their season, well, hopefully it will be successful in the end. All right. That brings us to the end of this episode's summer reading recommendations. And you know you want to take a break and get reading, right? Well, we're also taking a break for the month of August. We'll be back in September with more episodes, so make sure to check back then. But for now, consider this the end of season one and the start of season two of Critical Value coming soon. Thanks to everyone who has written reviews on iTunes. We absolutely love the comments and the feedback. Really appreciate it. Shout outs to listeners with the usernames Yoho Checo, Kula Scuda, and Talis Monger for the recent reviews. We love it. Appreciate it. Keep sending the feedback. Please take a few seconds to go on iTunes and to rate the show. And if you're feeling inspired, you can leave a review too. And if you have the chance, tell your friends, tell your family members, tell your neighbors to download us too. Big thank you to everyone at Urban who took the time to share with us what they're reading this summer. We have put all the links to the books recommended on our webpage at urban.org slash critical value. And finally, a huge thank you to producers Jacinth Jones and Katie Smith and to our sound editor, Riley Byrne from podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off. We'll talk to you in a month.